Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Pipeline from the Indianapolis Star, he covers the Colts. Joel Erickson is with us. I mentioned uh, also playing the Tom T. Hall song, I Like Beer In, because evidently Joel is a Brewers fan, from what I hear. Is that true, Joel? Brewers fan? Yes. Yes, that's true. I, uh, and 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 a, a diehard watches like 100 games a year Brewers fan. Like, ah. I really got it bad. Okay. Now, how yeah. far do you go back with this? Uh, well, what, the first games I went to when I was a kid was uh, the part of Wisconsin I'm from is actually closer to Minneapolis. So it was like the Kirby Puckett Twins and Yount on and Robin Yount Brewers. But Yount was on the very tail end. That was when the Twins were really good. Um, but but those those state lines are strong. So even though I was closer to the Twins, I was a Brewers guy from from way back. They were just they were just really bad for a, a really long time in my childhood. Well, do you, um, well, obviously, I've had Rob Deere on this show before. He's one of my all-time early Brewers favorites because he was he was the classic boomer bust in '87. I mean, he was a lot of striking out and a lot of home run hitting. I always loved that. And uh, I'm assuming Paul Molitor was Paul Molitor still on the Brewers or was he already with the Blue Jays by the time he was? He was. Uh, I think he. I, I first remembered him as a Blue Jay, and then later I learned about him being a Brewer. Deer is great whenever uh, they get him in uh, Milwaukee for like a you know come back for a game because Euchre always just puts him on blast for being one of the better partiers in the league <laughs> on the radio broadcast. So, <laughs> he'll, he'll get on there and he'll say, you know, Rob, you were pretty good on the field, but you were all world, you know, after the game. And, and Deer always tries to get out of it, and Euchre's like, no, I remember. Well, one of the um, one of the references that would be famous in baseball by Chris Berman was Rob Bombardier. That was one of the better ones Chris Berman ever did. <laughs> yeah, Deer Deer obviously has a has a place in in Brewers Brewers hearts. He had the big. He was part of that big team streak in '87. Yeah. Um, when they won their yeah, first eleven, a little bit before me. They, I think they won their first eleven in 1987, didn't they? Thirteen. They won 13. their first thirteen. Gotcha. But they also lost like thirteen later in the season. <laughs> so it'd be exactly like the Reds right now. So kind of like, kind of like <laughs> that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. In 1982. I hate the Cardinals. I hated the Cardinals back then. I hate them right now. And I was uh, going for the Brewers out of the AL in '82. They ultimately lost to the Cardinals in the World Series. But it went, it went Cecil Cooper. Jim Gantner, I think uh, was Robin Yount playing short then, maybe yep. Molitor at third. Ted Simmons was the catcher. Ben Ogilvie in left. Um, uh, Gorman Thomas was in right, I think then too. Who was playing center? Who am I forgetting here? Well, I'm so it was Thomas in center. Thomas in center. Okay. Thomas was in center. I'm actually reading. Uh, the book nine innings about uh, about a game between the Brewers and the Orioles in that year, so it's it's fresh in my mind. So Thomas was in center. Okay, who was in right? Who am I forgetting? 
That might be the worst sound of all time right there, Joel. Did you just flush the toilet? Sorry, my uh, my phone decided to switch on to my car's Bluetooth. For ah, some I thought you flushed the toilet. That was a really awkward sound <laughs> right there. So who was, it, who was in right field? Uh... Thomas was in center, and then uh, right field was kind of a mishmash, depending on who they wanted to play. Like okay. they, Don Money was out there sometimes. They'd use Charlie Moore out there. Yes, yes, thank Marshall, you. Marshall Edwards. Don Money. And the great Moose Haas would have been on the hill often. So Yes, Moose Haas, Mike Caldwell. Yep. Pete Vukovic. Uh, Yep, Vukovic. Uh, they got Don Sutton late that year yeah. in an effort to get there. So, yeah, no, it, that's the, that, that team is uh, is revered. And I, I, obviously I wasn't, I wasn't around at that time, but. Well, I did, I did I, like, I, just, I did like the Brewers then and I wanted them to beat the Cardinals, but that's been long ago. <laughs> I, that, that book is a good read. If anyone wants to pick it up, nine innings is a, it's a neat way to tell a baseball story. Yeah, I was trying to think. They yeah, their stadium back then. I mean, obviously they play in what is it, Farmers Insurance Stadium now. But uh, man, the, the stadium they had prior to that well, wasn't much to write home about, was it? County, uh, I don't. I, I sort of remember County. We went well, to a couple games in Milwaukee, but I, I mostly spent games growing up going to the Metrodome because the Metrodome was like two hours, yeah. and Milwaukee at the time was like four, four and a half from where I was. They hadn't done some of the, uh, they hadn't done some of the, uh, the interchanges and stuff that make it it's about a three and a half hour trip now. Great reference, by the way, bringing up Don Money. That is a fantastic Topps baseball card back in the early '80s. That's well done out of you, really well done. <laughs> um, I was talking about this. Somebody had asked me regarding. Uh, the money and why couldn't the Colts give Jonathan Taylor some right now and make him happy, at least make him happy enough to want to, to drop, you know, the antics right now and come back and start practicing. Because at some point here, you're going to start missing time and you wonder how long if he does come back, it's going to take for him to get back those wheels proverbially in motion here. And, and I reminded folks out there that there is no money. I mean, the Colts just expect him to come back and play with what he signed for in that final year of his contract. For me, the Colts have no wiggle room in this and are not going to bend on this. Would you agree? It doesn't – I mean, it sure doesn't seem like it from what they've said publicly. If they wanted to, it's well within the rules, and they've got enough cap space. They could give him more money if they wanted to. But everything we've heard from them is we're going to wait until we're not going to extend him until after the season. We want to see what we have with this coaching staff um, before we before we make any decisions. Which, uh, to be honest, I mean the coaching staff should kind of know. I mean, I think you can turn the tape on and, and know what Jonathan Taylor is. So I wonder if part of that is just saying we're not going to pay him until after we've seen him back, and they're trying to say it in a nice way. But I, they haven't really left themselves any wiggle room for it. Now, if they want him on the field. Maybe that comes to a head at some point, but without without having Taylor speak or anything or just know exactly what's going on, I, I'm I'm with you. I don't know that we're going to see that. How much of a point does he ultimately have? It's just that he has zero leverage to do anything about it. Well, I he he has a point. I mean, every other drafted star that they've had come up to this point in their contract, where they're going into the year before 
their the end of their rookie deal. Like that's when they've gotten signed. Quentin Nelson got signed, uh, Braden Smith, uh, Shaquille Leonard, and and you know there are people who say well they weren't coming off injury. Well, actually that's not true. Nelson and Leonard were coming off of injury. Leonard was on the pup uh, at the time when he signed his extension. And people will say, well, they've never signed a running back. Well, that's not true either. They, they signed Naheem Hines in that situation. Now, it, if the team wants to change that, and, and clearly they do, if they want to change that history, that's fine. But it's not going to necessarily ring true in the locker room where, the, where they've gotten used to. If you, if you get drafted and you're, you're a star right away, you're going to get paid before the final year of your rookie deal. So there, there's, there's, there was reason for him to expect the deal now. And the Colts are breaking their precedent. Now, are they well within their rights to do that? Yes, they can do whatever they want. But you can, I can understand why, uh, as, a, as one of the drafted players, having seen, you know, he was there for all those extensions. Having seen that happen with all those other players, I can understand why he would have expected one now. Joel Erickson of the Star is covering the Colts with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So is Kenyon Drake brought in because they need positional help here during camp, or is there a longer-term season type of view with a guy, you know, that has experience playing with the type of quarterback that people hope Anthony Richardson can be? Well, I, I think I think the biggest thing with Drake is that they're they're pretty short on experience and pretty short on sort of the the every down um first and second down tight back with, with Taylor out and with Zach Moss uh injured. Now Moss, if you do the math six weeks, that kinda puts him right around the season opener, so I, I still think there's probably a chance that he could be ready for that. But, you know, this is the time of year when you have ninety guys on the roster and you kinda you make sure you have people in different places to do that. Because Deion Jackson's a third down back. Evan Hall's a third down back. Um, and, and as far as what he is going forward, uh, a lot of it just depends on Taylor if they if they need if they decide they need Drake. I, I don't think at this point in his career that Drake is the sort of guy that you would consider competition for a guy like Jonathan Taylor. Agreed. Uh, even when even even when Kenyon Drake was at his best, he was kind of a number two option in the NFL. Yeah. You know, so um, well, I do think that just with the injuries and stuff that you start looking at it that way. Well, when you think about it last year in Philadelphia, when Shane Steichen was there, they had Miles Sanders who rushed for over 1,200 yards and obviously Jalen Hurts who went over 700 himself. And then a, a couple of dudes that win, I think, uh, 200, 300 plus, something like that as well. So I was just kind of thinking a long-term stick option maybe in this offense more than just kind of you know a running back brought in in camp would be what the Colts are yeah, thinking. I think, I, do, I think he's more than a camp body. I think there's definitely a chance he makes the roster. I've just seen some people sort of say well this is this is a message to Taylor and I guess I guess there is maybe a message in just where we can sign somebody else but in terms of Drake replacing Taylor I think that's That'd be a stretch at this point of Drake's career. You think at all, behind the scenes, privately, there is any content with understanding that the Colts, and organizationally speaking, they believe they're going to have a, a bad season, something they would not talk about outwardly, certainly. But is there some understanding there that they would expect to have a bad season coming up this year? I, I mean, I think you can see it with some of the moves they've not made, you know. They're going into a season with a very, very young cornerback group, very unproven. 
you know, they, they didn't really address that. They didn't add a whole lot of veteran depth or competition to the offensive line. There's they, there's moves that they could have made if you feel like you're going to con- like really contend for a division title instead of just hope to surprise. And I don't know that they did any of those. And so I think I think there is some of that behind the scenes. If if they thought they were going for it, then you probably keep Stephon Gilmore and you sign another corner and you do that kind of stuff. And they didn't do any of that. Yeah, well, they did last year too. And, and you would have to think that Chris Ballard was certainly wondering about his future right going into last year and then they they made those moves including bringing in stefan gilmore which would be you know major expect to win something type of moves and then this year they kind of cut themselves from that how much of this is the comfort now that that ballard has even if it's comfort that he shouldn't have but he does now from jim ursay moving forward with his decision making in mind well i think I think the fact that they kept him and then decided to go, you know, very obviously from the start, we're going with a young quarterback. We're going with a rookie quarterback that we're going to have to develop. The, the key, the key for me was at the owners' meetings. Jim Irsay said, "We know once we start going down this road that there aren't any exit ramps for a while." And um, well, there maybe are some scenarios where an exit ramp shows up faster than you'd expect. Generally, that's true. It's They're going to have to give Richardson time to see what they have in him. And if you're going to bring in Shane Steichen and hire him, you don't get a different general manager to pair with him. So I think that, that, that you know, what they're doing is they're like, we're going to see where we are with Richardson, and that's a future play. You know, Chris Ballard said we, we drafted him for what we think he could be. And so that's a future play, and that means that there's there's there should be at least security for the guys – who are pulling the strings behind him. Otherwise, you make it harder on your quarterback. Joel, the past couple of practices for Richardson, you've described this as well, have been much better. In comparison, how much better have they been compared to the previous efforts in practice of the rookie quarterback? Oh, I mean, quite a bit better. It's a very significant difference. You know, he had a a 5 of 13 day. Um, He had an 8 of 13 day, I think, were the two preceding these last two and then he's 15 or 19 the last two days and you know some of that is some of that it should be said that there's the defense was missing five starters at points including three members of the secondary um you know julian blackman wasn't out there rodney thomas wasn't out there uh kenny moore wasn't out there the other day when he when he had his big day force buckner wasn't out there so it it wasn't like it was the full-on first team defense but it still is much better than he'd been playing before and he made some big plays in situations that are sort of designed to test players. They put them in what Shane Steichen calls a call-it period. These matter a lot to him where they don't have it scripted and the player can't study it beforehand. They're calling it like they would in the game. Um, and then he made – he got his red zone period, and it was, I think, from the 25 with 46 seconds left, and they had to get a touchdown and two-point conversion, and they had one timeout. And – he scored on the second play. He hit Byron Conley Granson on the second play and then ran in a two-point conversion on the next play himself, you know? And those – when when guys start to show up in those situational things – now, granted, it's not a game, but when they do well in those situational things, that, that does get the coach's attention. Like I said, Shane Steichen likes those call-it periods. He puts a lot of emphasis on those. <laughs> 
love that. That's that's wonderful there in the background. I love that too, yeah. man. We've all been down that path, brother. It's all good, man. Yeah. It is yeah, all. I just want to make sure. Are you okay? told it's a little fussy. Oh, are you okay to to hang? I want to make sure because it's dad first yeah, I'm here. I'm good. I'm good. I think I got him. <laughs> so Joel A. Erickson of the Star with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. You know, with all this Jonathan Taylor soap opera going on, we have really not talked at great length about two of the major categories in which there should be ample question marks, both at offensive line and in secondary. Are we kind of skipping over this? Is it convenient to skip over it because of the storyline of Jonathan Taylor? And are you, like me, major concern with both of these categories? Yeah, I, I am I, I am with you on that. I mean, I, I think that the Taylor thing sort of turned into this supernova to the point that, especially in, even in the first week of camp, um, people were, were, were asking about Taylor more than they were asking about Richardson. I went in thinking, you know, Richardson was going to be the end-all, be-all of every training camp practice. That's kind of turned a little bit to where it's now I'd say it's it's half Richardson, half Taylor. But the offensive line is a big question, especially to me. I think the biggest question is is not, you know, what are you going to get from the starters? Although I think that there are definitely questions there if you get – if you get development from Bernard Ryman at left tackle, I think that goes a long way to, towards helping you. I think that development's probably expected, given that he's a third-round pick uh, with, with little experience before that. But my biggest question with the offensive line is, what are they going to do when someone gets hurt? Um, and somebody's going to get hurt. There was a year a couple of years ago where every starter started every game, and that's, that's the rarity, not the, not the norm. So uh, the depth is interesting. Danny Pinter – is back, but he's, he's really been successful mostly at center in his career. Um, outside of him, not a ton of proven options in the inside. At tackle, they just signed Dan Skipper from Detroit, who was still available despite starting five games for the Lions last year. And then they got the fourth-round pick, Blake Freeland. None of those are, are plug-and-play options, at least as it seems right now. So with me, the offensive line is, is – it's I want to see what happens with those starters, but the depth is a big issue. And then at corner, you know, the, the, the applicants for the outside corner position are essentially two guys in their second year who are undrafted free agents three, and then three rookies. And expecting to get top-level play out of that group is probably, is probably you know, foolhardy. And, and Chris Ballard isn't even expecting it himself. I think what he said was, you know, we're going to take our lumps at times back there or something to that effect during a, his press conference. And I think that's fair. Like, so from a corner, from a defensive perspective, last year, I think we all remember Stephon Gilmore won was a big reason they won some games, and there were other games that the corners had a big had a big emphasis on it. I don't know if that's going to happen this year, and I wonder what that means for a, the pass rush because they're going to need time to get home. And I don't know, you know, if if these guys struggle or nobody steps to the front, that's going to be tif- difficult. Then a defense is going to be kind of a sitting duck. So Joe Erickson, the star, covers the Colts via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I guess uh, this is question A and B. A, uh, could the Colts bring in 19 more tight ends? And B, of that 19-plus group right now, might we see Kylan Granson emerge as a major target for what we hope to be the growth of Anthony Richardson from week number one on? So tight end is really interesting um, because it feels like there are more guys who could fill those spots than there are spots. Um, Drew Ogletree is probably having the best camp so far. 
and he obviously was hurt last year, wasn't on the roster. Jelani Woods has not has been hurt and is not playing in camp, but I think everyone understands he's the guy with the most upside as a true number one tight end. He's the guy who can stretch the field, give them the explosives that Shane Steichen wants. And then you've got Granson, very reliable receiver. You've got the new pick, Will Mallory. You've got Mo'Ally Cox, um, who's been around for a long time and been mostly successful as a on-the-line blocker. Um, that's five guys. They're not gonna ca- I don't think they're going to carry five tight ends. Farrell Brown's here and got a shout-out from Shane Steichen, too. They're, some of these guys are going to end up getting cut, and I wonder if they end up going young with it. Uh, like I said, I kind of ran those guys down. I know Drew. You, you think you like think Mo will, will Mo be in trouble in this? Mo well, Ali Cox. It depends on the blocking of. I think mostly of, mostly probably of Ogletree. Um, because if you look at what Steichen did last year, he had Goddard, and then he had a a, a receiving tight end that kind of fits the Granson mold. Then he had a blocker, and the blocker would be Ali Cox's thing. But if you've got Ogletree in that role and you feel good about him, that makes me wonder, you know, is, is Mo Cox maybe in that scenario? Which, you know, I don't think we would have seen that coming a couple of years ago, but I think it's possible now. All right, Joel, speaking of which, any of these veterans or maybe a, a couple of veterans that you think may have some issues in terms of making the opening week roster? Well, I think, you know, Ellie Cox is probably the first one. Um, in terms of guys that have been around a lot, there's there's some thin spots on this roster, I think, elsewhere that maybe precludes you from it. But in terms of some guys who maybe we heard their names this offseason, like I know, you know, I think Isaiah McKenzie is probably in a good spot, especially with his punt return and kick return. But they've added some other wide receivers, and obviously there's Josh Downs. Um, you know, people – we're interested in Amari Rogers because he was a third round pick when they signed him last week, but that's a third round pick that has not done much in the NFL. And that, you know, they've got kind of a lot of guys like that. Um, but as far as, as surprise cuts that we've seen be here for a while, I just keep, when I look at this roster, I just keep thinking, you know, beyond the starters here, it's a lot of question marks and that makes it harder to cut some of those bets. Yeah, no doubt about that right now. Alec Pierce, you're number two. Even with a rookie quarterback, and, and more than likely when they're going to be misses from Anthony Richardson, these things are going to be major misses here. How much do you expect, however, raising the bar on his game in your number two for the wide receiver, Alec Pierce? Well, there's been some really interesting stuff, um, especially like the last time we talked to him. You know, last year when we talked to him, it kind of felt like he was getting used to the NFL and getting used to the schedule and everything he had to do and, and trying his best to learn all the nuance that Matt Ryan was, was telling him. But, you know, it's, it's difficult for a rookie. And this year, the last time we talked to Alec Pierce, he was talking about stuff like, you know, the difference in how certain corners play him and how he's been working with Reggie Wayne on, on what tricks to use when a guy likes to trail the way Daryl Baker does or what, what, do you, what you do when you've got a guy who likes to get his hands on you like Kenny Moore does. And that, that was interesting. It, it, to me, it signified a different level of understanding and detail to his game that, can really, that Reggie Wayne can obviously really tap into. The question I have with, with Pierce and with Pittman and with all these guys is kind of what you alluded to there is, is there going to be the volume for them? You know, if Richardson starts a bunch of games and they go heavy run, are they going to have the volume in the passing game necessary to put up the big numbers? Or is it going to be something where we're going to go, okay, maybe the numbers 
aren't a huge step forward, but you can see a difference in Pierce's play and consistency and that sort of thing. Without the melodrama of Jonathan Taylor going on right now, would we be at or at least close to an extension from Michael Pittman Jr.? And ultimately, will the timing of this matter whatsoever? He said, I know last week that he's not worried about it and uh, he's fine with playing this final year out. Um, Does that mean he's been told that he's going to get his at some point? That's a good question. I also wonder if he's fine with playing it out because his position is not one that he has to worry about whether or not he's going to get paid. No doubt. That's it. That's the start. If if Michael Pittman Jr. ends up on the market, like this this is a good example. Everyone thought the Christian Kirk deal was crazy last year. Michael Pittman has already been more productive in his first three years than Christian Kirk was before he got his deal. Now, that deal worked out for the Jaguars pretty well last year, but I – I think that Pittman and his agent can make the case, hey, I've got 99 catches, you know, 82 catches, I've got a 1,000-yard season. Like, if the Colts don't sign Michael Pittman Jr., he's going to be fine because of the position he plays. I think that's the biggest difference is if he gets to the market, he's going to end up being fine. Taylor is Taylor wants to get the extension from his own team because that's who's paid running backs lately. So do you think that that, that saga with Taylor at all has had – any sort of effect on how the Colts proceed with Michael Pittman Jr.? I I, I get the impression, especially given that Pittman's that, that you know Pittman Jr. has a Pittman Senior around. I, I don't necessarily think that it affects it as much because I'm guessing that having an NFL dad probably gives you a pretty good sense of what to do with the market before you get into your career. You know, I don't know that anything really takes him by surprise, given given that his dad was in the NFL for a decade. Yeah. yeah. Final thing here, too. What's your impression on Shaquille Leonard and what he has gone through where he is right now compared to Joel? Uh, you and I both had, had asked each other questions about, you know, what to expect and we got to see it to believe it. So far in what you have seen, again, only in practice time and training camp, what's been your impression? Well, so you actually set me up really nice here because the story I wrote today, I'm not sure if it's on any star yet or not, is – is the coaches, the defensive coaches, um, talking about Leonard. And I thought, they, I thought their quotes were pretty honest. Um, Gus Bradley was saying, you know, we've been, we've been seeing incremental improvement, but what we never saw last year was a big leap where all of a sudden he takes a big jump in movement. And he said that he felt like he saw that yesterday. And then Cato June was talking about, and obviously Cato June, you know, as, as a former player knows this, he was saying, like, when you come off of an injury, the hard part is – even after you're medically cleared, you have to get that confidence. And he said that if he starts, if Leonard starts making the plays that he's used to making, where he gets his hands on the football a lot, you'll start to see that. And then maybe he can start, you know, really making these jumps even more. And then I think the other thing was, was Richard Smith, the, 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 the linebackers coach. He said, you know, you know, will he be the guy he was three years ago? I don't know that, and he said he said he doesn't know if Leonard knows that. He said, but if if he can get to the point where they feel comfortable playing him physically, he said he's confident that Leonard's instincts and understanding of football, kind of the way he did two years ago when he was still playing, are enough to make a lot of big plays. Because Leonard was pretty open and honest about the fact that, you know, in in his last full season he was hurting, and he was still very productive in that season. Hey, closing here, who gets the start at quarterback in Buffalo Saturday? Uh, that's a great question. I, I, If it was me, it'd have to be Richardson. 
Like, if because everything they've said is that this guy needs to play, and I just I just think that you if that's true that you play him in the preseason and you maybe play him a lot. But that's just me. Shane Steichen has given very little hint of what he wants to do. He's fended he's off that question three or four times now in the last week. How much of that playbook do you think? Again, one final thing. It, it, the playbook compared to Shane Steichen in, in Philadelphia, because I'm assuming these playbooks will be similar. Uh, it's just going to be the thickness, I think, of these playbooks. How far into the playbook do you think Anthony Richardson is right now? Well, they said that they're over half the install. They're doing call-it period, so he's he's somewhere in that 60 to 67% range, and then they're going to end up tailoring it. I don't think – I mean, you never see stuff really in the preseason anyway, but I think it's going to be even more even more like that with this Colts team because they feel like they have an advantage and that no one has seen like what they're going to put out there. So I think it's going to be very, very base level in the preseason. <laughs> And then we'll get a better sense of it once we get to the regular season. In Buffalo, coming up on Saturday, of course, the pregame show is going to be right here. Joel will be up there, I'm sure, documenting things for you as well. And his latest on IndyStar.com is regarding Shaquille Leonard. Joel Erickson of the Star via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Joel, I appreciate that. Have a safe travel to Buffalo, and I'll, I'll track you down coming up. I'll be up there for the night practices, the early evening, I should say, practices. That is next week, I believe, Wednesday and Thursday. We'll see you up there then. Yeah, sounds good. Look forward to it. Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline, latest podcast. I want to say with Dan Wetzel of YahooSports.com, is this the 500th episode pod-wise you put up there? 500th college football inquirer. How about oh, that? Oh, my goodness. That's big that's time right there. More outrageous every time in the college football <laughs> You don't even have to make it up anymore. You know what? At one point in time, you maybe actually talked about football on the field. <laughs> yeah, one episode. <laughs> that's about it now. Um, I, I know that, and I've just followed you on Twitter and I know that your your past five or so days have been incredibly hectic. When you double back and maybe reflect on it from where it was and where it is right now and then allow yourself to think about logically where this still may be going, how about some of these thoughts you can share with us that immediately come to your mind? Well, I mean, one thing about this whole thing is just how quickly it accelerates and how utterly absurd of a way it is to run Um. An industry, you know, not just a business. So even if you are wherever you are far in the fall on the scale of like, I wish the Big Ten would kick Penn State out, go back to 10 or a let's have a 24 team league. It doesn't really matter. The idea that in a matter of days and with like a roller coaster ride of we want somebody, we don't. We just random board of trustees and a couple handful of presidents just on the fly saying, hey, let's add two schools that a year ago we didn't want uh, television executives basically pushing everyone around um, leagues, 108 year old leagues blowing up uh, backstabbing all the different stuff. It's just not how you do it. Like if the, if the NFL wants to expand and go to like 34 teams, they'll spend five years looking at different markets, different potential owners, stadium fun- you know, college football just sits there and does it. It's like, okay, like they're ordering, a, you know, whether they're choosing chicken or pasta for dinner. So the whole thing is just crazy that it went down so quick. Last Tuesday I reported 
the Big Ten is looking at, uh, because a bad Pac-12 TV deal came in, the Big Ten is looking at adding Washington, Oregon, and potentially Cal and Stanford even. And it was that quick. By Friday, the whole thing was done. They took two, not four. But it was literally 72 hours, and they just expanded. And now they've got two new teams. And, I mean, like, you have ADs going, you know, we, we were looking at the logistics. Oh, I didn't know Eugene's airport wasn't big. Like, nobody knew anything about this. <laughs> You know, we can't charter to Eugene. I'm like, I, I, I did not. But, you know, uh, you can't land a 737 there. I'm like, that might have been something you guys should have asked. Uh, <laughs> or just said, why are we doing that? Why do we have to do this in one day? Uh, but here we are. It's sort of like when they added Rutgers and said that we're going to get good. And, uh, you know, what is it? Like 14 years later, they still stink. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, oh, we didn't yeah. realize how bad it was. It's just. <laughs> so illogical of a way to run a business, even if they stumble into a good decision. So does the Big Ten, when, when they put the pressure on here, they go, all right, we have to have a decision like right now. So you better figure all this out and, and make this incredibly overwhelming decision in the next 35 seconds. They, they put t- that type of pressure on? Kind of, and I don't know why, because it's, it's, it's self-induced pressure. I mean, I, I thought like last Friday morning, everybody, the Big 12, Oregon, Washington, Pac-12, everybody in college sports should have said, hey, look, everyone take the weekend, exhale, do some studying, let's all talk again on Monday. And instead it's, yeah, it's, it's like a bidding war for a, for a house on, in a hot housing market. It's just like, let's just do it. And so, um, you know, at one point they weren't going to take them. And then, and, and, you know, a lot of it's like, well, the Big Ten's like, hey, we can, you know, Oregon and Washington, they're only going to get a half share or a little more than a half share of the revenue for, for six years or seven years. So we got an asset at a discount. I'm like, that's a great MBA, um, you know, like um, project to get your MBA. But, like, is the Big Ten, like, bargain shopping? Like, what are we doing here? Like, the Big Ten already was the richest league in college sports. Nobody needs more money in the Big Ten. They may spend more money when they get the money because the, the inherent problem here is in college athletics, they have enough money to run all these sports, but the goal is to spend more money than someone else to run the sport, which is why you have like $50 million locker rooms and, and, and you revamp your, your weight room every three years and you have waterfalls and, and mini golf courses in the football facility, and you just spend and spend and spend, and it's not logical. Like, I, you know, Indiana football and Purdue football probably have better facilities than the Colts, right? I know, like, Michigan State does. You know, like, the New England Patriots practice on one field. They have one locker room. They have a bubble, and that's it at Gillette Stadium. And somehow they've managed to practice football well enough to win six Super Bowls. But if you tried that in, in big, the Big Ten, you'd be deemed you wouldn't be able to do that. You need a $200 million facility. Uh, so you know, Northwestern has a $200 million football facility. New England Patriots is probably worth about one hundred grand. <laughs> what are we doing? But they spend and spend and spend, and they go, well, we need more money, so let's just add two more teams. So, you know, I don't think in, in, inherently it's that big of a deal. It's just a really weird way to run a sport, a huge industry. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Dan Wetzel of YahooSports.com, his 
500th episode of a podcast, which has very little to do with actual football on the field, but a lot of <laughs> what's going on certainly off of it. If you wouldn't mind, just because obviously we do talk to a lot of folks that care deeply about both IU and Purdue, and especially their football programs, what does all this now at 18 mean for either? Does it mean something different? Do they stay the same? What do you think now and into the future that means for both? So, you know, it's a, it's a little different scheduling. I mean, obviously, every once in a while you're going to play Oregon and you're going to play Washington, um, like you're going to play USC and UCLA that are coming in uh, in 2024, not this season, but the season after. So sometimes those schools will come visit you. Sometimes you go to L.A. or Portland or Washington. It's not too bad. What I don't understand really the appeal for the Indianas and the Purdue's is those are all programs that at least three of them, I don't know about UCLA, but they could be, have better tradition and resources and recent history of success than you. So it's like you just added teams that are tough to beat. And in a pecking order of an already really difficult 14-team league where it's really hard for Indiana and Purdue to get to that top and you can fight past, you know, immovable objects of Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State, you now added a whole bunch of programs that also are very difficult. They're just better resourced and better set up for success than you are. So you sort of go, why would we add those? Um, I don't know what that really helps. I don't know that anyone in central Indiana is fired up because Oregon might visit. It's not that exciting. Uh, It also means it's one less trip from Penn state or something. So it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit harder uh, really for those fleets. I, I never understand why the schools in the middle or the bottom support expansion. It's a dead Wetzel of YahooSports.com with us. So they sit at 18 right now. How hard do you expect them to go at to get at 20 here ultimately? It's a matter of like when that option is, is available that helps. Um, the ACC is, has the schools that they would probably want from here on out. Um, North Carolina, Virginia, maybe Clemson and Florida State, but certainly North Carolina and Virginia. And then the one they really all want is Notre Dame. So, you know, you're sitting at 18 and you go, well, the, would the ACC ever break up? The ACC schools are under it's an ironclad grant of rights contract through 2036. So for the foreseeable future, and I say this understanding how absolutely naive this could sound, because if you told me two years ago the Big Ten would have a four-team West Coast flank, you would have hung up this interview. <laughs> 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 so I understand nothing is predictable because here we are, but – those are the ones that if you're the Big Ten saying, okay, this adds some value to us. Can we get those kind of those kind of big state schools, academically minded, big brands, Virginia, North Carolina, obviously Notre Dame, and it may be Florida State or Clemson or whatever. Um, right now, too, the SEC is at 16 teams. Now they're adding Oklahoma and Texas in 2024, and they're pretty happy with where they are. They're a little more into regionality and commonality of the institutions the Big Ten is just flat all over the place. Uh, no doubt about that. So now you get four remaining out west, the Pac-4. So what happens to Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal ultimately? Yeah, that is – Oregon State and Washington State are probably headed to the Mountain West, some, some merger to, you know, Boise State, Fresno State, playing those kind of schools. Uh, and I think they'll do they'll – do, fine there but their their revenue drop is enormous i mean they're going to go from 20 or 30 million a year to like four 
So they have, you know, you build up your facilities, your stadium, your debt, you have, you know, it's loans, all that. It's going to be tough. Uh, Cal and Stanford, who knows? You know, there's talk of they could join the ACC. Um, imagine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Clemson, Clemson and Cal on a Thursday night. A little hoop. Nothing, nothing says Atlantic Coast more than <laughs> San Francisco. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can imagine the travel demands on your on your players. Not Football is one thing. They're going to charter, big plane. You go in on a Friday, you play on Saturday, you come home, right? But, you know, softball, <laughs> soccer. <laughs> I mean, right. I don't I don't even know how you do it. Or they can try to find, go independent. I don't know. It is, they're, those four schools are left. It's a game of musical chairs. Those four right now got, got the, the, the chair pulled out from underneath them and they're looking for, for a future. So, um, you know, one, the sport, all college sports, but is football driving. I mean, some of the absurdities. We have major college football in Starkville, Mississippi, Ames, Iowa, uh, uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma, and not San Francisco. Okay, sure. I guess <laughs> <laughs> the fifth biggest city in the country with tons of wealthy people and the tech and all the stuff. No, we don't. We don't. We don't do you. We do little town. So it's like revenge of the small town uh, that San, that San Francisco is getting left behind. Dan, here in closing, is is there zero chance Cal and Stanford would ever be added to the Big Ten for nineteen and twenty? So the presidents liked the idea. The, the subgroup of presidents that met last year, they were interested in it for the academics, um, and also the connection to Silicon Valley and all the tech companies and so many moneyed alums that live out there. So you can imagine Indiana going to play Cal and the, the banquet you can have the night before and connecting with all that type of stuff or Purdue playing Stanford and, you know, same thing. But TV does not like it because those those schools do not bring much to the market. They haven't been very good. But if I was Purdue in Indiana, I'd be more interested in something like that because those are teams you could beat. And maybe it opens up a recruiting area and things like that. But uh, I'm not a television executive. And believe me, the TV executives are running all of college sports. This is about TV. It's about getting as many big brands to play each other as often as possible in football and everything. Nothing else matters. Tradition. Um, regionality, uh, how often you play each other, competitiveness, nothing else matters. They just want as big a brands playing each other as possible because that's what gets 5 million, 8 million, 10 million people to watch a game. And the other aspect is we already pay, I'm sure most of us out there pay at least some amount of money to get the programming sports-wise that we watch. And you know it, it's going to drastically change to keep that revenue flowing in. You know every year, every five years, every ten years. I mean, I, you can see further down the road where it's going to be nothing but pay per view here. I don't know how long it's going to be, but I would assume at some point, maybe I'll be dead and gone by then. But that'd be happening that way. Yeah, streaming. You know, keeps keeps growing, although. It's limited. I will give the Big Ten credit for this. Their games are predominantly going to be on Fox, NBC, and CBS, at least three games a week. Um, so, you know, I know, how often does that include Indiana? Yeah. I don't know. But those are their football games. So they, they are trying to go linear because there's a lot of, obviously, value in people seeing your product. Um, but, you know, the Big Ten network was the, was the canary in the coal mine of you're going to have to pay for this and – you see it in MLS. You want to watch Lionel, Lionel Messi play soccer? You're going to pay for it. 
Yep. Uh, it's just not going to be on regular TV. Even though it would it would garner huge ratings, they can figure out that they'll make more money getting enough people to pay fifty bucks to watch on Apple TV. Next time you come on, we're going to talk about actual football in the field, college wise. Okay. Okay, I hear the season's coming. <laughs> That's what they say. It is the 500th episode of the podcast. It's at Dan Wetzel if you want to go and check it out. He, uh, with Ross and Pat, uh, have a great conversation regarding this, too. And uh, we'll get to football uh, sometime down the road. Dan Wetzel of Yahoo via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline right now for the morning show. Kevin and Query, weekday morning, 7 until 10 a.m. They're going to be at camp again tomorrow in Westfield at Grand Park. And uh, Jake, who joins us now, is going to be at Wrigley Field on Wednesday to check out Bruce Springsteen. Is that the first time? That is correct. Yeah. Um, I've never seen him. I, what's your? Let me ask you this, John. What is your level of Bruce Springsteen-like fandom? Um, I'm all right with it. Like I, I saw him one time at the Yum Center in Louisville, and I can understand why people would like him so much because the dude works his ass off on the stage. I mean, absolutely works it. You would not believe. Will not believe it. Uh, and he has great songs. There's no doubt about it. It's just weird. I don't think I like the same ones that the hardcore fans of Springsteen like. Like I just came back with Tunnel of Love by Bruce Springsteen. I think 1988, somewhere in that neighborhood. And most people would not suggest that to be a great Springsteen album nor a great Springsteen song. That makes sense. Yeah, I think he's definitely one of those guys that his diehards like take pride in knowing like the deep cuts, right. And not, you know, being like a poser, Oh, dancing in the dark. But I was never like a diehard fan. I've always enjoyed his songs. I've never sought them out per se, but I've always heard that he's a great performer and entertainer. So just knowing that obviously he's getting older, I thought, you know what? I really want to see him once to say I've done it. So uh, my buddy Michael Weir and I, who's the lead singer of the elect, we're going up there. And then actually, um, Bob Kravitz is a huge fan, too. And when I had Kravitz on, I mentioned it to him. And Kravitz is like, oh, man, I'd love to go. So I said, well, hey, buy a ticket and let's go. So Kravitz is going with us. So will Kravitz so, buy a ticket just randomly and sit somewhere away from you guys? That's, that's I weird. I go, I go, <laughs> I said, look, man, Michael and I already bought two tickets. So... If you just want to buy a ticket that's like near us, so he just bought one in our section. I mean, sure, we'll probably. As a matter of fact, we are like in the upper deck, right? Because yeah. it's at Wrigley. And because tickets were not inexpensive. And I'm not like a diehard, right? But I think we may be in like a bleacher because it just it doesn't have a seat number. It just says row number like one. Okay. So, I, so my assumption is he'll end up, it's like kind of festival type thing. Hopefully, you know, so. The days of festival seating. How about that? Remember that? They'd open up the doors and everybody would be on an absolute dead sprint to get to the seats on the floor. Well, I think that all ended after there was one tragic event, right? It did. You know, the thing about Springsteen real quick that I always appreciated, I think I told you this, but as, as story goes, and this has probably been embellished, I don't know, but the story goes that when they recorded We Are the World, that you know, Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie had like sent everybody their parts ahead of time to, to, to let them know what to to sing or what to be prepared for, but they didn't have no one had the song in totality. 
and they recorded that. I think it was either the night of the Grammys or the American Music Awards, like in 83 or 84, because everybody, you know, when they could get everybody together. So after the awards show, everybody shows up in a studio to record that. And then they, they let everybody see what the actual song in totality was. And people started complaining and arguing, and why does this person have this part, and I should be singing in front of them, and this and that. And supposedly Bruce Springsteen is the one that went and like grabbed the microphone and was like, what in the world is wrong with you people? Like, we're trying to do something to help other people that are less fortunate, and, and you guys all act like you're bigger than the cause, and like just like ripped everybody a new one, and like dropped the mic, and everybody was like, you're right. And boom, they got it, and they recorded it and went on about their way, um, which I always thought was cool. The only thing that would have made that better is had he uh, provided a little bit of evidence as to why John Oates should have a line in there. John Oates was just kind of standing around. Why did, o- why did Oates not have any lines? How is Dan Aykroyd there? That's what I like, <laughs> like, Dan Aykroyd is in We Are the World. It's the weirdest thing ever, right? Yeah, Elwood you know, Blues. Actually, Elwood Blues, he could have had a, a part there. John, who, who had a line and we are – like if you had to redo it, oh, who's the one man. that did the test of time where you're like, yeah, that, that person probably doesn't belong. Yeah, you have to I think mean, about the moment, though. I mean, the test of time. Oh, I know. Yeah. Um, I mean, Kenny Loggins. Kenny Loggins has lines, right? Yeah, he should. Well, yeah, Loggins definitely should have lines there. Right, I think he did. He did. He did. Yeah. Um, uh, what's is it? Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna blank here. Jeffrey, who was like the there was like an R and B singer that was in there. Was Jeffrey Osborne was in that? I can't remember. Think, is that who you're thinking about? I think Jeffrey Osborne. No, we can't there. take that I mean, away from Jeffrey Osborne. That's way too soulful, right there. The 1980s. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Jeffrey Osborne is a is a massive talent. I mean, there's no doubt, right? But like. But he's not one that's a household name forty years after the fact. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, man, there's some there's some big time stars in there for sure. See, I, I didn't know that story about Springsteen though, about him telling everybody to be quiet. It's pretty cool though. It is. It is. Yeah, I mean, it'd be tough to take a lot out of that. I would imagine. Would it not? Participant yeah, I mean, wise, you imagine like, I mean, just the egos in general. Like we. Mm. We had had to film a video for our radio station, and there were like five of us, and it took three and a half weeks to get it done. You had had Lionel Richie, Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, Kenny Rogers, James Ingram, Tina Turner, Billy Joel, Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, Dionne Warwick, Willie Nelson, Al Jarreau, Springsteen, Logan, Steve Perry, Daryl Hall, Huey Lewis, Cindy Lauper, Kim Carnes, Bob Dylan, and Ray Charles. At that moment, you couldn't take anybody out of that. Yeah, I mean, seriously. I know. I, Kim Cards, maybe, maybe, right? Mm, it's uh, that that rough, gruff kind of female voice is such a good sound. They probably that's and, that was pretty good. And in that era, she was massive. There's no doubt. I mean, yeah. pretty tough. Hey, pretty yesterday tough. I enjoyed that race down in Nashville. Yesterday I did. What happened with? Uh, I've never seen that happen to somebody like what happened to Malukas yesterday. What happened there? Yeah, he was all of a sudden his his literally his rear wing it was an attenuator failure. So some sort of an attenuator that attached the rear wing it it literally fell off. Now my first thought was 
because once he came to a stop, I saw basically flames, and I'm like, okay, did he have some sort of a brake fire that then heated up the attenuator and caused it to, to, to fall off? And I don't think that was it. I think that what you saw from the brake fire was just the fact that he had just pitted to he had full, just the way that he stopped, the, the heat was just getting into the engine, and that's what caused that, the way that he abruptly came to a stop. So I, I don't know what the – I haven't heard what the exact issue was, but I would agree with you. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden it's like – I think it was Michael Young's like, you know, come to Michael, come to Michael. And he's like, Malukas just went into the runoff, and, it's, and his wing fell off. And I later saw the replay, and I'm like, wow. I mean, it literally just fell off. So, you know, that's not a part that obviously you're changing in the pits like you would have nosed, so, which they hadn't done. So it was some sort of an attenuator failure, but what caused it, I don't know, actually. But you're right, not something you see every day. Um, Kyle Kirkwood won yesterday. That's his second win. Is Kyle Kirkwood been more successful for Andretti Racing than Marco? Yeah, probably, uh, in all honesty. I mean, Marco Marco had what? He won at Iowa. He won at Laguna Seca. Or no, I'm sorry, uh, Sonoma. So there's two. He might have had three wins in his career. Um, you know, Marco, in terms of sponsorship, active, I mean, there are a lot of things away from statistically speaking where Marco was an asset for sure. But in terms of overall production, I mean, you know, the, the one thing that Kirkwood, Kirkwood to me, if you ever watched the TV show The Wire, which is the greatest TV show ever made, one of the things I loved about The Wire is at the end of it, I think we've discussed this before, but each character that is older you are introduced to a younger character that clearly kind of accepts that role, like is the next version of it. And in terms of IndyCar, when we're about to see a change here with some of the older guard either retiring or moving on, you know, the younger guys that are filling that role, to me, Kyle Kirkwood is like another Ryan Hunter-Ray. Just a really good driver, tactical driver, but kind of understated in terms of personality, you know, kind of a quiet guy to himself, nice guy. But there's nothing about him that, that pops off the chart as like superstar, excitable, pot of award level personality. So I think that that's why you haven't heard as much about him. But he was dominant. He won every level that you could win in you know the latter series to get to this point. And then he drove last year for A.J. Foyt and kind of in a borrowed deal. Everybody knew that he was eventually going to end up in Andretti. And I think he learned a lot from running with that team just – a team that didn't have as much speed and had yeah. to work, you know, he didn't have results. So I think people kind of wrote him off, but he's pretty darn good. And you're starting to see it now. Ramirez and Anderson, the fight that broke out on Saturday night in Cleveland between the White Sox and the Guardians. Is that the greatest base brawl of all time right there? Or is it the greatest because one guy completely knocked the other guy out? I've never seen a guy get knocked out, literally knocked on his keister. Like I think that. if you go back, fight, there right? may have been a time, Jake, and this goes way, way back. If you remember then Yankee center fielder Mickey Rivers and Bill Spaceman Lee, I think that they got into something that was pretty major. I mean, uh, back, but Martinez that's how far back you got to go. Yeah. So, I mean, there have been some brawls that were pretty unbelievable, but in terms of one guy, I mean, landing one like that, man, that was as solid as it gets for sure. Uh, you know, Nolan Ryan and Robin Ventura come yeah. to mind. I mean, that was that was pretty solid, right? When afterwards, when Nolan Ryan's like, I, I steer cattle for a living, and this guy thinks he's going to come approach me and intimidate me. <laughs> um, 
But it was, you know, speaking of the White Sox, by the way, not that anybody cares but me, but um, I'm going to Wrigley Wednesday for that game, and then two weeks after that on the 23rd, I'm going up to see the White Sox and the Mariners. Um, I have no idea how it came to be, but a couple of years ago, Shannon and I were sitting there, and I was like, you know what, we should just go to a major league game sometime. Let's go to the White Sox game. It's close enough. And we had a great time, so that's become our a summer tradition. For one day, we I take off and we go up. We go to a White Sox game, and I'm not even really a White Sox fan, but she bought a White Sox hat, so we go every year now. Have uh, Cubs fans always been this insufferable? Boy, I remember John when when the Cubs were on the cusp of winning it in '16. I remember saying, "Listen, be careful what you wish for here, because if the Cubs win the World, World Series." then it completely changes and shifts your fan base. And you go from being, a, you just become another fan base. And they were like, no way. And I'm like, yeah. Because the, when the Cubs in 2016 were about to win the World Series, there was no one on planet Earth that had seen it. No one. I mean, there was probably like a guy in France who was 111 or something. But no one had ever seen him win a World Series. So now that they've won it, and that mantra of like the lovable losers was gone, then they're just another fan base. And I had, my mom is the biggest Cubs fan alive. She had a license plate on her car for my entire childhood that said Cubs 85, Cubs, you know, the whole deal. And yet I don't ever remember hearing fly the W until like eight years ago. Am I, am I wrong, John? Do you remember that when we were when we were younger? Do you remember the rally? Uh, no, not at w? all. Not at all. I, I go back to when they had that, that first level of success that I can remember in 84. And the Padres knocked him out in the, the NLCS. Yeah, I, I don't remember it there. I remember uh, Jody, Jody Davis, your home runs go so far. I remember that song. Do you? Oh, yeah. Which is Jody, nice. Well, I remember Harry Carey had Jody, Jody yeah. Davis, catcher without a beer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, you know, that 84 team, I mean, Keith Moreland, they, that 84 team for the Cubs. Yeah, I agree. Had, well, what a lot of teams, John, if you look at a lot of teams that, that make a run, you know, Ryan Sandberg was a great player. Rick Sutcliffe was a very good pitcher. But typically when teams like that have a run, it's because you have a couple of utility-type guys that all have career years simultaneously. And that year, Bobby Dernier, Keith Moreland, Jody Davis, for that matter, you know, they all had career years. I mean, every one of them had as good a year as they were going to have in their career. So then you throw in Gary Matthews and, and you know, Leon Durham hit 20 home runs. Was, was Manny Trio on that team, too? Was Manny Trio think, a part of that? I don't think he was. Okay. He would have been – gone the year before, right? Might have been right. It might be right. Yeah, I think. I mean, Richie Hebner was like their utility mm. batter. Um, Sean Dunstan and Larry Boa kind of platooned back and forth at shortstop because Dunstan was a rookie. Um, Sean Dunstan, by the way, at the end of his career was with the Cardinals in 2000. And when the Cardinals won the uh, the Central in 2000, I'll never forget Sean Dunstan in the clubhouse and I'm interviewing him. And as I'm interviewing him, I'm like, uh, hey, man. And he had like his five-year-old son on his shoulders and his kids swigged about half a bottle of champagne. And I thought, yeah, this, this isn't good. <laughs> Not good. Yeah, it just seems yeah. like they're very, I mean, I mean, very insufferable right now. So it's just, I guess the way they, I didn't really notice it until, I, like I've tried to hang with them a little bit because of, of Tucker and Tucker Barnhart, but man, especially in the past week or so, it just, uh, you know, it, it was a pain in my ass. Say. So I totally agree. I mean, I, for those that don't know, I like you grew up a Reds fan 
and my like I said, my parents are huge Cubs fans. The the one thing I will say in defense of Cubs fans, the one thing I'll say, there is no doubt that going up in the middle of the day, the Wrigley Field in the neighborhood and walking the neighborhood and going and going into that stadium. You know, Fenway's the same way. I mean, there are certain places where, you know, Lambo's like this. There are certain places where even if you're not a fan, you go in and you go, yeah, I kind of get it. I, I get it. It's different. It is. It's a Jake Query morning show. He and Kevin, 7 until 10 a.m. tomorrow morning up at Colts Camp at Grand Park in Westfield. I mentioned this. Bob Lovell came on. He's starting year number 30 now of Indiana Sports Talk, and I had mentioned uh, those. That's rarefied air around here uh, is certainly right now. Kevin Gregory is going into year. He's had 34 years at RTV6 as the weather guy. Is that true? That sounds right because he would have started there. I remember when I worked at 6, and Kevin knows this, Ed Sorensen was convinced that Kevin Gregory was like the teacher's pet chosen one, and it drove Ed crazy. (laughs) And – one night, they had they had you know pictures on the wall inside Channel Six of the the anchor lineup, and Kevin Kevin walked in one night and rounded the hallway and caught Ed and Ed had a sharpie and Ed was drawing a halo on all of the pictures of Kevin Lee and little devil horns on himself. And he's like, I'm telling you, buddy, that's what management thinks. This guy is the golden child. Kevin Gregory, he's like the nicest dude on the planet. And like, he thought it was hilarious. But um, man, that's got to be, I mean, if you're talking about people locally, John. Yeah. I was thinking of he and Chuck Lofton off the top of my head. I mean, obviously Debbie Knox, but she hasn't yeah. been in one place, right? Right. Um, Chris Wright's been here. Uh, you know, Chris Wright entered the market around the same time. But in terms of one position in one place, that's what I've always said about you know, those that have retired in this market and done so, I mean, Calabro's been at, I mean, he's got to be close to 30 at 13, right? But people who have, have worked at one place and been able to retire in radio and television on their terms, that is such a testament to their, to not, not only their ability, but also just their, just what they're like as people, because th- those, I mean, we all are so expendable. Tim Anderson, by the way, we talked about that earlier, suspended six games. Jose Ramirez, three. If you're Tim Anderson, do you question your decision-making after all this? <laughs> Not in the moment, man. You're fiery competitor. I, I mean, he, he he's the one that threw the glove and was ready to go. He got knocked out and suspended six games, three more than the guy that knocked him out. Yeah, that's that's brutal right there, right? Yeah, I mean, in a, in a world that, you know, rarely... He started it, but did not finish it. <laughs> that is that is pretty brutal, right? That's something that is never, ever going to go away. Yeah, ever. He, that is correct. I, that, there are few things that he can do in his career that is going to... Few things that he's going to do in his career that are going to have the ability to upstage that moment in his career. Jake, I know you're uh, pretty often on X here, or what used to be Twitter, has um, the over-the-top advertising from Cheech Marin and Tommy Chong, does that uh, interest you in any of their gummies? Um, You know, between that and then there's the other one now that's like every third tweet 
of one of these companies that like it's like oh man check it out they gave their friend gummies and didn't tell them what it was and it's like hidden cameras of these people being punked by like and I'm like I think that's illegal but yeah um, no, I, I blocked all of them actually if oh you oh you blocked them did you yeah okay. if I see something on there that, that like at the bottom it says sponsored or it's I see it more than like three times in a day I just eventually I wonder how much Cheech and Chong and their gummies had to pay to get that frequency like they are. I think there are people, you know, the other thing you could do is if you don't want to pay, what you could do is you could just incessantly retweet yourself like 48 times in one day, despite nobody (laughs) reacting, responding to your tweets. And I mean, you would have to be so delusionally narcissistic to take on that approach and not realize that no one cares. But I don't know anybody that 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 falls into that category. Uh, so maybe they just pay I for got it. my I got my uh, hands on my chin right now in wonderment, as you can watch via YouTube Live right now, as to what you possibly could be referencing here. Uh, you guys got Juju Brents coming up tomorrow morning, I see, huh? Yeah, we're going to be out there tomorrow. Um, I have to stop actually. On the way up uh, tomorrow, and as a matter of fact, if folks are coming up, we're going to start giving out some some codes for you that you can use to get some uh, discounts on a dozen donuts from Quack Daddy Donuts on your way up if you're going up to Colts Camp, which is right there in West in Westfield. So that's cool. So we might have to have a couple donuts tomorrow, and then I'm interested to talk to Juju Brents because he's got a great opportunity before him, but at the same time, you know, he's obviously it took him a while to get on the field, which I understand because you want to be healthy, but um, that's got to be just kind of a dichotomy of emotions. I mean, the, the desire to get out there, but also wanting to, to make sure you're healthy for when you can. So curious to see now that he's on the field, um, you know, what he plans to do to take advantage of this opportunity because it's a big one for him. And it's a local kid, so that's cool too. Have you noticed the uh, the walk of Jonathan Taylor out there? Does he look like he's injured as much as people so, want to portray him to be? So, John, it's so fascinating you mentioned that. I have noticed, but here's the thing. I never paid attention to what his walk looked like ahead of time. So I don't know. I mean, it looks, is it power of suggestion or is he really hurt? I don't know the answer to that. He definitely walks kind of upright and slow, but I have no idea. It's possible he's always been that way. And I don't know the difference because I didn't, I didn't, I had no reason to pay attention before. Um, but my understanding is, and I don't pretend to know anything you, you have not heard, but just in talking to people, I mean, look, I think this is beyond just a, hey, listen, guys, I'm not real pleased about the way some things. I'm like, my understanding is he's still, he's dug his heels in. Yeah. He does not. Yeah. Does fear. He's out on the field. I'll give him that. He's, he's walking around. You know, it was very interesting the other day when we were watching, and I was watching Jonathan Taylor standing there. And Chris Ballard walked over and stood next to him, and they were chatting. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what Chris Ballard's thinking. Because, you know, Ursay can say all he wants that they're never going to trade Taylor, but Chris Ballard's probably thinking to himself, like, hey, if I have to, I have to, and I can probably get something. You think, you, you think he said, you know what, you really do deep down deserve this money. I mean, More that, money. You, know, you think he said that? Deep down I mean, inside, I mean, I know this to be true. You really deserve it. You know, but, I mean, the, the big guy says no. That's, I mean. I'm just making this up. I'm not, not down No, I, I, I get it. I mean, I, you, I think, I will say this. I think that if you really 
if you really put truth serum in everybody, Chris Ballard will be the one that probably is the most diplomatic in the situation, but it's kind of beyond his control. Like he, if I'm Chris Ballard, if I'm Chris Ballard, like I'm tiring of being put in situations or being, or having situations around me that seem to usurp my power, frankly, but yeah, if I'm Chris uh, Ballard, I go, wow, I'm still here. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Wait a minute. What? That, <laughs> so we've had, we've done this, and I'm whoa. Okay, do whatever you want to do. Like four more years now, right? Because mm. I have a. He's, <laughs> he's going to get at least three. Hey, by the way, this is this is what I was talking about, and at no point in time I, I have celebrated the Reds because I've been excited about them, but I, I know exactly what I felt they really are. I get this from Michael. Butthurt crying about the Reds coming back to earth and the Cubs literally getting seven games in the standings in a month. Not selling and fans being stoked about it. I don't know what the end of that means, but that's the, that's the type of jackassery that I'm talking about right here. I mean, I don't, I don't know where this comes from, and I've, I've told everybody now, I mean, you better hope this team is for real because I understood mine wasn't. You better hope yours is because I'm going to be tap dancing all over everybody's ass on this. I mean, everybody. Even end, if Tucker I, Barnhart plays for them, I'm going to be tap dancing on everybody. In the end, you know, you know when you go to a game and they do that thing on the Jumbotron where they're like, okay, it's time for the – you know, and, yeah. and it's like the one, two, and three race, and the crowd has to cheer. And it's like, number two's ahead, and here comes number one. Oh, number three at the wire. You know, that kind of thing. I, in the end, because you always have two of those numbers that are way up and way down, way up and way down. In the end, that's the Reds and Cubs, and Milwaukee probably wins the division because they've been consistently the better team of the three. They've been consistently all year long right there, whereas the Reds and Cubs – have both been streaky. In the Cubs' case, the streak is now. Do they maintain it? I mean, I guess that remains to be seen. But if I was a wagering individual, I would put it on Milwaukee. I'm going to be dancing because it's it's a matter of time before it happens. So, a matter of time. Hey, by the way, too, uh, Jim Romanek, Romy and Sarah came back from West Virginia and brought me a bag full of racks roast beef. How about that? I, I and it's believe- awesome. We had a meeting this morning, and I walked into it, and you were sitting there with a, a racks bag. Awesome. And my first thought was, I wouldn't throw the bag away. No, seriously, like, I no. Took the bag. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it was. It was good. I, I did. I made this. I put horseradish on it. That was a mistake. I've got indigestion like crazy now, but it was still awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, for some reason, and I know. I mean, listen. I know it was racks roast beef. I mean, the one at seventy first in Benford. I went to ten thousand times. Right. I met Brian Hammonds there for the first time when I was like in seventh grade. Thought that was the coolest thing ever, and he's a super nice dude. But I always didn't. Did they have ham sandwiches also, hot ham and Swiss, or was it just roast beef? Um, no, it was roast beef. The the big one was called, and I've I've called it uh, BBC, which it is. And then obviously some of these nerds and social media have, have taken this different ways because they are nerds and dorks. But it is the uh, uh, beef and cheddar, big beef and cheddar, is what it's called. Yeah, that was the it, big deal back then. So who 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 came out with the beef and cheddar first, Arby's or Racks? I would say Arby's. Okay, I would say Arby's. Right. Arby's first. I was, a, I was a fan of Rax. For some reason, when I think of Rax, I think that I need to wash it down with a like cola. So yeah. I, 
tell you what time period. We're Get talking. a little salad bar and hit, sit in that greenhouse area that they were. I think at least one of, one of the first ones with the whole greenhouse. That's exactly right. Areas. It's almost like the racks roast beefs all just moved into old Wendy's and kept the same <laughs> setup, right? Hey, to put a bow on this, my friend Greg said, "Ackroyd and we are the world." He was just kind of looking for somebody's office and wandered onto the production set, so they put him in the video. I did not know that. That sounds that sounds entirely plausible because that's kind of what he looks like in the video. That's, like, that's kind of that, that also describes like a, Dan Aykroyd of the 1990s, right there. He just hey. I think he has like he has like Sony Walkman headphones on, just like walking around in the background. Yes, that was perfect. Uh, Mark Jackson has been offered one million dollars by an adult site to provide play-by-play analysis. Is that true? I don't know, but he'd probably be just about as good as that as he was on television. I was never a huge fan. Oh, really? I sound like Mark Jackson. I, I love Mark Jackson and Van Gundy together. I did. Yeah, I just I, – I think I kind of tired of Mark Jackson when he was a player. I, I just, like – I always thought he was a lot more talk than – I mean, he was a good player for the Pacers for sure. I think he gives himself way too much credit on, like, his ability to, like, be in Reggie's ear, you know, that kind of thing kind of wears me out all right tomorrow morning you and kev begin at seven at grand park in westfield that's right eight o'clock tonight beyond the bricks of mike thompson all yeah. week the brickyard oh you know i didn't bring that up too you know i should have because i i wanted to talk a little bit about you know the the greatest drivers of all time that we have now forgotten but we'll save that for another day maybe next monday too afterwards jake i appreciate you all right, that works